0: Greetings and happy Aloha Friday to all. Now, let's be honest with ourselves, shall we? I'd be welcoming you right now with a smidge more authenticity if I were at my other home in Hawaii, but why not do it anyway? I mean, after all, we just witnessed a season of political campaigns and local elections reaffirming our cherished freedoms, so why not wish you a happy Aloha Friday? There. There done <laughs> end of end of argument, if there even really was one anyway. Well, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, tither and yawn, welcome to an experience truly unparalleled in the three hundred and eighty one plus years of Greenwich, Connecticut's history. Lucky for you, you've come to the right place, and by golly, you're on time, too. Congratulations. I hope you are as happy as I am to be here with you on this brisk early November autumn day. This is the Friday, 5th of November, 2021 Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with your host, Jeffrey Bingham-Mead. That's me, by the way. So without any further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. You know, some of you are really driving our elected officials and police officers absolutely nuts in the 21st century. Why? Well, it's because a number of you, we won't mention names, of course, have been leaving the keys in the ignition of your cars. And you're acting, shall we say, a tad bit bewildered that people are driving off with them. Well, let me ask you this. Did you know that Greenwich drivers were being admonished about leaving their car keys in the ignition as early as 1945? Did you know that Conyers Farm almost became a bird sanctuary in 1915? That an effort to rename Lake Avenue as Horseneck Road was stopped by Judge Frederick Hubbard? Can you imagine how much fun it must have been in 1904 when the congregation of Little Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church burned its mortgage? Could you imagine, too, what it must have been like for Italian workers to use dynamite cartridges to catch fish in dumpling pond in 1884? Have you ever experienced a nightmare in which you fell into a tank full of apple cider? Well, guess what? That happened to a man in Round Hill in 1891. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wherever it is you happen to be, we will have all this and lots more fun stuff on today's weekly voyage into Greenwich, Connecticut's fascinating history. It doesn't get better than this. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... An award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based... Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Sound Shore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive experiential landscape spaces cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect, at SiteDesignAssociates.com. Again, that's site design Associates. Dot com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town For All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li.com s i s t u d y info or call 475-897-5444 again that's 475-897-5444 and we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show The Ambassador Museum, United States of America is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families, or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbigh Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, again that post office box 5002 Greenwich Connecticut 06831 <laughs> Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President at Jeffrey Matthews Financial Group, whose financial advisors are knowledgeable in the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. Learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor's Greenwich office at 203 485 7595. That's 203 485 7595. Well, my friends, before we get started, I just wanted to remind you, not that you need to be, but we just got through a very, very interesting local election season here in Greenwich in year 2021. Um, With that in mind, I wanted to uh, take you back in time to the year 1896. That was also a local election year in Greenwich. And I have a story here that comes from the November 7, 1896 edition of the Greenwich Graphic. I'd just like to, to share some of this with you, maybe make a little bit of a comment or two as we go along. The story begins. Everyone wore a smiling face on Wednesday morning. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Well, for many of you, it did. And maybe many many of you, you didn't have a smiling face. It all depended on where your um, preferences were. But anyway, let's move on. Expressions of enthusiasm over the result were noticeable in many directions, The big flag which has floated so inspiringly over Greenwich Avenue from the post office building to Mr. Ray's building opposite was decorated with brooms. This I don't quite understand why you would decorate uh, a flag with brooms, but okay, I don't know. Anyway, it, this is 1896 we're talking about here. All right. Mr. A. Foster Higgins' handsome pair of chestnut horses had their manes plated with red, white, and blue ribbons. That must have been quite a sight to uh, to see. A little girl in the afternoon was seen riding a bicycle dressed in the American flag. A procession formed among some of the merchants in the morning. They marched down the street with Mr. Amos M. Brush in the center, decorated with flowers and many of them carrying vegetables. Hmm. They, They filed into the trust building where the noise of laughter and speeches gave indication that they were having a merry time. With their vegetables, okay. <laughs> All right. uh, in the evening, um, and I'm assuming that uh, it's the same evening, maybe the evening before, I don't know. In the evening, a crowd began to collect on the streets and in Ray's Hall. Republicans had established headquarters in the Lennox House, and the hotel was full of people who came to hear the returns. A Western Union wire had been run into the hotel, and an operator was there to receive the dispatches. The golf club also had a wire and an operator. The members of the club and their friends assembled at the clubhouse and listened to the results. The telephone company also furnished to their subscribers for the asking all the latest news and did it very quickly and satisfactorily, the graphic office being among the number supplied. Could you imagine getting uh, election returns uh, from the uh, the telephone company directly dialed to your home with somebody on the other end? Not, not a robo-recording uh, or anything like that, but... Uh, a real person. So again, this is 1896 we're talking about here. All right. Now, about midnight, as the uh, article concludes, uh, about midnight, an immense bonfire was kindled in front of the Lennox house, and the boxes and barrels of the merchants on the avenue furnished. The material. So, um, what an interesting contrast that is uh, between 1896 and how the elections were uh, received um, and how the returns were received versus what it is that we have uh, today. Um, Since we are uh, over with the elections, my congratulations go to all of the candidates. Um, It's a very, very tough thing to. to run for political office. It's, it's something that would uh, never tempt me. But uh, I really have to admire those of um, of any party or those unaffiliated or independent who decide to throw their hats in the ring and to uh, to go for it. It's a tough thing to uh, to do. And needless to say, my friends, may I remind uh, the political parties in the campaigns, don't forget to go out and to pick up all your campaign signs. I think a lot of people are very, very anxious to see, uh, to the, see those goes. So again, that's that's um, that's how the elections were uh, received uh, in um, and ha- what happened afterward, obviously, in um, 1896. <laughs> Dumpling Pond is located at the intersection of Valley Road and Palmer Hill Road in the North Mayanas area of Greenwich. Um, You've probably driven by there at least once in your lifetime. I know that I have many, many times. Now, during the Revolutionary War period, the um, British Redcoats had barged into the home of a miller Um, demanding food, including dumplings that his wife had just freshly made. Um, And in protest of uh, not only uh, the cause that they represented, but also the invasion of their um, home, the wife um, took the fresh dumplings that she had made and threw them into the pond. Thus, the name Dumpling Pond um, uh, figured into our history. Uh, I found uh, something else that I thought was uh, quite amusing that I wanted to, um, uh, to share with you. This dates from 1884. It was published in the Greenwich Graphic uh, in um, uh, April of, uh, of that year. And I, I have to admit that I really loved this. Now, part of my heritage is Italian, so um, this, uh, on a certain personal level, uh, caught my, uh, my, uh, my eye, and I wanted to share this with you. I hope it brings a smile to you as it did with, uh, with me. And uh, the, uh, the story goes as follows. The headline is Dynamiters at Dumpling Pond. On Sunday, some of the Italian laborers employed on the Olmstead Parallel. By the way, I have no idea what the Olmstead Parallel is. If you can find out, please contact me at GreenwichAtownForAllSeasons at, at gmail.com. I have no idea. Anyway, uh, let's move on. Again, let's start again. On Sunday, some of the Italian laborers employed on the Olmsted parallel adopted an entirely new plan for replenishing their scanty larders. Surreptitiously obtaining some dynamite cartridges from the storehouse of the contractors, they rowed out on the Mayanus River in boats and, lighting the fuse, dropped the cartridges overboard and then rowed rapidly away. In a few moments, a column of water would shoot up, following by the appearance on the surface of hundreds of dead fish. These, the Italians collected by the bushel. In one instance, a fisherman with hook and line nearby suddenly found himself in boat hoisted skyward, and though not hurt, he had considerable scrambling to get out of the scrape. If there is no wall to prevent this wholesome destruction of fish, there should be, and it should be applied at once. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I. I. I I've never. Um, I've never used dynamite, uh, and and I'm assuming that the vast majority of you, listening right now, haven't either. But um, I have to admit that I thought that that was a rather ingenious way to um, to catch rather large amounts of uh, fish with very little effort and uh, with very little um, uh, time necessary so uh, you can take that what it is Uh, the source on this again is the Greenwich graphic from the April 26 1884 edition on page five and the headline is dynamiters at dumpling pond I thought it was really great and you know what I hope that uh, that you did too Let me ask you this. Do any of you have any very, very old Hoover vacuum cleaners laying around the house? <laughs> I don't know. But this was a question that was uh, posed not only to people here in Greenwich in 1932, but also throughout the United States. Um, there was a push by the Hoover Vacuum Cleaner Company to locate the earliest Hoover vacuum machine anywhere and um, let me let me share the uh, the story with you again this comes from the daily news graphic November 2nd 1932 uh, the question was who owns the oldest Hoover is the question the Hoover company is asking its dealers and representatives throughout the country to find out The women who supply the oldest models are to receive brand new Silver Jubilee Hoovers. This search to discover the oldest examples of the oldest make of electric cleaners in the country has been undertaken by the company in conjunction with its Silver Jubilee. Quote, The Hoover Company wants to get hold of the oldest Hoover now in use to make it part of their historical exhibit of old models at their factory in North Canton, said Mr. Peck of the Greenwich Electrical Company, local authorized dealers for Hoover electric cleaners. Quote, I'd like to find one of the earliest machines here in town if I can. If there is one of them to be had, I plan to exhibit it in our store. These early electric cleaners are extraordinarily looking objects, big and clumsy and weighing two or three times as much as the present lightweight Hoovers, but they are mighty interesting, he said. They show the almost unbelievable progress that has been made in electric cleaner design and efficiency since the Hoover company started in 25 years ago to revolutionize home cleaning Again, he continues on, "...if the women in this community who have old Hoovers will get in touch with us, they will be very glad to check up on their machines. For the oldest Hoover in this district, the Hoover Company will give one of their very latest models a Silver Jubilee Hoover in exchange." Other Hoover dealers throughout the country, the story continues with Mr. Peck speaking, are also searching out these old cleaners, and each district is giving away new cleaners for these old Hoovers. They hope to secure a number of early models in that way, and that's the um, the end of the story. But really, I have to admit that, um, that there are people that I know that actually still have Hoover vacuum cleaners. Um, and... Uh, uh, very old ones. They're very durable. Uh, and uh, so I don't know if you have one. Uh, I'd be very, very interested. And I, I don't have anything to exchange you for. I don't have any um, uh, modern ones to give you, sorry. But just out of curiosity, if you have one, please contact me uh, at Greenwich at gml.com. I forgot to mention in the um, Last segment that you can also find me on Facebook. You can look me up at Jeffrey Bingham Mead, uh, or you can even find the, the show has a Facebook uh, site at uh, Greenwich of Town for all seasons. So please contact me. I'd be very interested to find out if you have one of these very, very old machines. May I let you in on a secret? In my not-so-humble opinion, nothing beats the comfort and soothing qualities of a good, hot, cup of coffee in a historical setting. The Coffee for Good Cafe is located in the Stone 1858 Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue behind the Second Congregational Church of Greenwich. My friends, this is not your ordinary high-end retail coffee shop. Coffee for Good is a new, unique, non-profit partnership with the Second Congregational Church and Ableus. It employs and trains people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Coffee for Good's authentically historical, legendary ambiance will make you want to sip and stay for hours. Believe me, I'm there. (laughs) Enjoy exquisite indoor and outdoor dining. The service is attentive and friendly. And did I mention, ready for this, that the parking is free? Hey, just saying. Oh, and let me throw this into this free Wi-Fi. Need a place to study, work, read, meet up with friends, or just relax? Make Coffee for Good your destination. It's certainly one of mine. 48 Maple Avenue in the 1858 Stone Solomon Mead House. Open 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Saturday. Closed Sunday. Learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Again, that's coffeeforgood.org. The Greenwich Historical Society is pleased to mark the debut of the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonné with an illustrated virtual talk by Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., tracing John Henry Twachman's road to Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899 and created the Impressionist works for which he is best known. Dr. Peters will chart Twachman's artistic career through focus on a few key works from his early days in Cincinnati, to European study and travel, to New York City, and finally to Greenwich, Connecticut. Following the lecture, Dr. Peters will be joined by Greenwich Historical Society Curator of Exhibitions and Collections, Maggie Dummick, for a discussion about Twachman's continued legacy and the rich information available to researchers and art lovers in the John Henry Twachman Catalogue, raisonné This virtual event is being held in celebration of the public launch of the John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonne, a collaboration between Dr. Peters and the Greenwich Historical Society. The John Henry Twachman Catalogue Raisonne is a free digital resource offering detailed records of Twachman's life, exhibitions, and other material, including correspondence and entries for every known artwork by the artist. It is available at www.jhtwachman.org, that's jhtwachman.org. Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., is an independent art historian and curator, and the author of the John Henry Twakman Catalogue Raisonné. She is also the curator of the upcoming exhibition of the Greenwich Historical Society Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman, and the author of its accompanying catalogue. Her previous publications on Twachman include John Henry Twachman, An American Impressionist, That was with the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. She has published many other articles and exhibition catalogs on topics in American art. Mark your calendar, my friends, for November 18, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Registration is required. Learn more and register on the web at GreenwichHistory.org. Again, that's GreenwichHistory.org. Or you can call 203-869-6899. Again, that's area code 203-869-6899. For over a century, the Bush-Holly House and grounds of the Greenwich Historical Society have nurtured creativity, design, and artful living, Mark your calendar for November 18 for the next Create in the Barn workshop, the Thanksgiving tablescape. This intimate hands-on workshop with cocktails and camaraderie fosters community connection. Presented with local realtor Karen McKenna, the Greenwich Historical Society is pleased to offer this special evening night out, hosted in its historic barn. Now, registration is required. 6.30 to 8 p.m., on November 18 at 47 Strickland Road in Kaskab. You can learn more at greenwichhistory.org or call 203 869 6899. Again, that's greenwichhistory.org or call 203 869 6899. In October 1904, there was plenty of jubilation over at the Little Bethel Church over on Lake Avenue. Of course, we know it as the Bethel AME Church, uh, which is um, across the street from the uh, Greenwich Hospital. Um, In the Greenwich graphic uh, on October 15, 1904, that year, of course, um, unique ceremonies at the Little Bethel Church were held, and let me read the story to you. This is really cause for celebration, quite frankly, and I think you'll see why. The services at Little Bethel Church last Sunday were preparatory to the jubilee service of Monday evening which was to celebrate the freedom of the church from debt and to burn the documentary evidence of debt which had been hanging over the property for some years. Dr. H.T. Johnson of Philadelphia preached two able sermons morning and evening to appreciative audiences and in the afternoon, Reverend L.H. Taylor of Portchester delivered a sermon which was satisfactory to the congregation. The church was crowded on Monday evening with an audience enthusiastic to the last degree when the mortgage-burning service was to begin wouldn't you love to just burn your mortgage? (laughs) Well, first you have to pay it off. um, And, uh, you know, let me go on. All right. The Reverend Mr. Waller and Reverend Mr. Schofield represented the local clergy and made brief addresses in which they gave words of good cheer and congratulation to the church. The Reverend W.H. Eli of New Rochelle and the Reverend Mr. McCoy of Maranek and the Reverend Dr. J.P. Simpson, the presiding elder of the district, were also present and spoke in the same similar strain. Dr. James A. Stevens was asked by the pastor to make a few remarks, and he did so in his own way. Instead of proceeding as the other speakers had done, um, he surprised and almost unnerved the pastor by presenting him, on behalf of the officers of the church, with a handsome, loving gu- uh, cup engraved with his name and the date. Miss Lissy Sherman presented a gold lemonade set and a large fruit cake, and Miss Ethelda Perry gave a cake stand. Pastor Cole responded feelingly, thank- thanking them for all of their evidences of appreciation of his efforts. The burning of the mortgage followed, and was quite a unique affair. Well, I'll bet it was. Two of the, two of the oldest members of the, of the number who were present in the organization of the Society, Ms. Lizzie Sherman and Ms. Augusta Filmetta, representing the Church in the past, held the mortgage by the ends of a ribbon tied to the corners of the document. Then, Miss Sadie Ross, the youngest member representing the Church of the Future, applied the match, and in breathless interest, the audience saw the flame grow, gradually licking up the paper until only a little heap of blackened ashes remained. The audience sang, "'Praise God from whom all blessings flow in thankfulness.'" You don't blame them. (laughs) Going on, the pastor in his remarks said, quote, the property is now free from debt and the church building is in fairly good condition, but it needs a hat and a pair of shoes, unquote, meaning that it needs a new roof and a basement put in order. The supper in celebration of the event was an excellent one and reflected great credit upon the committee in charge, of whom Miss Ella Brown was the head. The members as well as the friends of the church have been very willing and eager to fall into line with the pastor in bettering the conditions of the church. Tomorrow the pastor will preach morning and evening And all are invited. Well, isn't that fantastic news? And again, uh, you will find this if you'd like to read it for yourself. It's in the Greenwich graphic, October 15, 1904. It's on page 5, and it's about the burning of the mortgage at uh, the Little Bethel AME Church uh, located over on Lake Avenue. That's really fantastic. So we shout out to them and say congratulations, and of course, God bless. This next story comes uh, in 1915, October, in fact, of that year, Um, and um, this is a a from a a story that uh, appeared and was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic, October 12, 1915, and it was on the first page. This, you know, when I grew up in in backcountry Greenwich, part of our property actually bordered Conyers uh, Conyers Farm, Um, and um, and so this uh, came as something of a surprise, uh, but um, it, it seems that. Nothing, well, never mind. Anyway, let's get on with the story, shall we? The, the headline was, Conyers Farm to be Bird Sanctuary, Mr. E.C. Commerce, to make his 1,500 acres a model bird refuge. Well, how about that? Um, this was, I have to admit, the first time that I had ever heard about this. Um Let's see. The position of Greenwich as an important center in the national movement for birdlife conservation is now assured. Conyers Manor, the largest private estate in this section, um, has long deserved the reputation of being one of the most successful examples of scientific farming in this country. Mr. George A. Drew, manager of the estate, to whom credit must be given for its success, is enthusiastic over the possibilities the proposed new department offers for serious investigation into the subject of economic importance of bird life. This new conservation department will develop all phases of the subject. The story goes on. It will not be made up from members of other departments, but will be one organized wholly from the view to increasing local bird life. The writer has been asked to select from the Massachusetts Agricultural College an economic ornithologist qualified to make Conyers Manor a model bird refuge. His work will include the raising of wild ducks, winter feeding and protection of game and insectivorous birds making and setting out nesting boxes, lessening the enemies of bird life besides planting wild fruits and shelter woods for nesting birds. With the thoroughness which marks everything at Conyers' Manor, careful records will be kept of all species found nesting, and as far as possible, a bird census will be taken, comparisons to be made as the work progresses. Special attention, the the story goes on, will be given to means to increase insect-eating birds throughout the hundreds of acres now in fruit. At the present time, this I didn't know, 34,000 fruit trees are protected from their many insect enemies by spraying. As can readily be seen, this entails an enormous amount of work, which would make which would be, excuse me, materially lessened were birds made welcome in these orchards. Scientific fruit culture robs birds of decayed trees and branches, in which woodpeckers, bluebirds, wrens, tree swallows, and others build their nests. Properly made nesting boxes will supply such species with nesting sites. Quail and grouse will be protected from hunters and their natural enemies. Systematic feeding will prevent their death from starvation during severe winters. Wild ducks will be raised upon an extensive scale and measures taken to make the lake of 100 acres, I'm assuming that that's Converse Lake that uh, the story refers to, especially attractive to wild breeding pairs. The half-wild cats and red squirrels, which now infest the great stretches of woods, will be kept in check. Weasels, gray foxes, sharp skin and cooper's hawks will not be allowed to increase in short. Nothing will be left undone to make Conyers' Manor a bird sanctuary, after which it is hoped other big estates will pattern similar conservation work. I guess it's referring uh, to um, some of the other what were uh, known as the Great Estates. And you might remember that the Junior League of Greenwich published a book about the Great Estates. Um, You can learn about Conyers' Manor and other estates. And those copies, by the way, can be secured um, and borrowed from the Greenwich Library. Anyway, back to the story. All right. Mr. Drew has assured the writer that the right man will be given the support of the entire wonderful organization at Conyers Manor, and this means that the manager of this new conservation department will have to produce results to remain a part of this busy establishment. Quote, Greenwich Bird Notes, unquote, will contain from week to week accounts of what is being done to attract are valuable native birds to these 1,500 acres. The writer hopes that many other big landholders in Greenwich will now see the worth of bird protection and realize that this new movement is appealing to farsighted businessmen as a way to cut down on the annual waste of, let's see, this this I can't believe, but um, 800 $800 million from insect pets. I'm assuming that that's national. And the name of the writer, incidentally, um, is Neil Murrow Ladd, L-A-D-D. I don't know if any of you have heard of him or not. I I have not. Um, To say the least, this is very interesting. I haven't found any more stories about this. Uh, I will continue looking. If you know anything about um, uh, what uh, came of the uh, bird sanctuary movement, whether um, it folded or whether, um, I don't know what form it took, if it took any form at all, please contact me at of for all Seasons at gmail.com. Also, you can friend me on um, on Facebook, uh, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, uh, and um, and you could also private message me there as well. I'd be interested in uh, hearing from you. So, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, in fact, or, or because of the fact, excuse me, <laughs> that uh, we just got Halloween and, um, and and the election's done and out of the way. This is kind of a, an autumn story. It's kind of a weird one. Um, and um, it, it, it is set in Round Hill in the year 1891. Um, and it's about a man who fell into a very, very large vat of cider <laughs> all right here's the story um about two weeks ago the the story says the writer read quite an account of cider making in connecticut since which time he has learned of one captain glut of the town of greenwich an old veteran of the hand mill cider frame who was desirous of learning the new process of laying a cheese i don't know what that means but okay all right um Captain Glutt called on Mr. James Youngs of Round Hill and found employment in said Youngs at this place. Again, this is up in Round Hill. Six or seven barrels of cider is produced from one pressing, while with Captain Glutt, only one could be produced with his hand mill. He, Captain Glutt, did not wish to appear green at the business and at once took off coat and vest for the work. Mr. Youngs told Captain Glutt that when he got about five inches of pumice to put on a layer of straw to which the venerable captain replied, All right, the story continues. Everything was working nicely for a time until a great noise was heard outside by Mr. Youngs, who immediately stopped the grinding and went to investigate the cause. Captain Glutt could not be found at his post, and a thorough search was at once made, and to the horror of Mr. Young's, Captain Glutt was found in the large tank which holds the cider. Captain Glutt was rescued without delay, and when taken out, he said he was obliged to all hands for saving his life, as he was pretty well exhausted. I would be, uh, but thought he could reach Captain's Island. <clears> hm. <throat> um, he supposed he had been fishing in Long Island Sound. Sounds to me like he might have been a little bit intoxicated. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, on with the story. By this time, he began to realize he was himself, Nero in parentheses, and not Captain Glutt. He made a start for his home, which, by the way, was not far from, and which place he did not reach without encountering another mishap. The same night a party was on their way to the post office and found a coat and hat, which afterward was found to be uh, property of the once famous Captain Glutt. so there you go. Um, could you imagine falling into a a, a, a a tank full of cider? Well, certainly not me, but uh, but there you go. hmm. <laughs> this year the town of Greenwich is marking the 125th anniversary of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department so to all of our um, officers staff um, and uh, and everybody with the uh, police department congratulations um, on that uh, milestone um, I was going through some of the um, uh, some of the uh, history notes that uh, that I have and I found one from 1924. Um, this is a story that was uh, published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on June twentieth. is on the first page. Um, and it has to do with apparently the uh, the establishment of uh, fingerprinting and uh, and even photography um, in the uh, Greenwich Police Department. Uh, so the story goes uh, as um, as follows. Um, Thomas H. Irwin Jr a member of the Greenwich Police Department for two years, has completed a course in the Bureau of Criminal Identification under the direction of Captain Golden of the New York Police Headquarters. It is a five-month course, but policeman Irwin only spent six weeks in the study of fingerprint work and photography. Within a short time, the local police department intends to install filing cabinets and cameras and will have a complete fingerprint system and photograph department in connection at police headquarters, with policeman Irwin now an expert in this line in charge. While studying in New York, policeman Irwin took 90 identifications of criminals through the fingerprint system. His first Greenwich case was that of Captain Edward Hayes, arrested last Friday night in the raid made upon a home of ill fame in East Borchester. A home of ill fame. What could that be? Of course, we know that East Porchester is now known as Byram. All right. <laughs> anyway, on with the story. This will undoubtedly prove a valuable asset to the Greenwich Police Department as well as other police departments throughout the country in the identification criminals who are arrested here. Well, there you go. So um, that marked the beginning, apparently, of uh, fingerprinting in uh, the Greenwich Police Department. That would be in 1924, as well as the establishment of uh, photography. Both very valuable things, uh, even uh, today in the 21st century. In 1931, a question was posed to the people of Greenwich. Should Lake Avenue be renamed Horseneck Road, well, <laughs> needless to say, it didn't happen, but there was a story about it in the Greenwich News and Graphic um, in November of, um, of that year, 1931, um, and this was something that was very interesting. I actually grew up on Lake Avenue and um, way up in the um, in, in Round Hill in the backcountry, and um, so this certainly caught my eye, and I thought that uh, as we start to close today's uh, podcast that I would share this uh, with you. Uh, the headline of the um, of the uh, story is, Judge Hubbard says, quote, Horseneck has been nickname and slur since 1640, unquote. Well, all right, here we go. All right. A special town meeting Friday night said no after Judge Frederick A. Hubbard presented historical data, which he asserted proved that Horseneck had been quote, outlandish nickname, unquote, and quote, slur, unquote, almost since 1640 when he said three men from Long Island settled in what is now known as Old Greenwich. Julian W. Curtis, that's a name that many of you probably recognize, of course, as an elementary school named after him, in explaining as a Lake Avenue resident, a petition filed with the Board of Selectmen and inserted in the call of the special meeting said owners of 95% of acreage on either side of the avenue signed a petition for the purpose of acquiring a name which, he said, would be more appropriate for the rural nature of the petitioner's holdings. Quote, the name at Lake Avenue is inappropriate for the countryside and inappropriate for the town, unquote, Mr. Curtis said. Quote, Horseneck is one of the old colonial names for a portion of the town of Greenwich, unquote. Quote, Mr. Curtis has been making bats for tennis courts and has never thought of looking up this outlandish nickname, unquote, Judge Hubbard declared near the close of a 15-minute address, quote, Mr. Curtis is simply occupying a position which he does not understand, unquote. Opening his attack on the petition, which the Lake Avenue resident circulated for weeks before appealing to the Board of Selectmen, Judge Hubbard said the petition was quote, the most remarkable one in 50 years, unquote. Collectively, he says, it represents a billion dollars, Judge Hubbard declared, stating that he had gone to the trouble of recording the assessment of the signers, quote, there is not one who signed who can tell a reason for the name Horseneck coming into existence. They are busy people taking care of their money and the property of other people and don't understand it. Greenwich, continuing, was settled in 1640 by three men who came here from Long Island. For 32 years, there was nothing in this part of the town but trees and Indians, unquote. The historian added, the story continues, that the settlers' cupidity aroused one day when the beauty of the country west of Old Greenwich appealed to them, stating, quote, they bought everything they could, including rye, and called it the West Society, quote, unquote. Judge Hubbard said the name Horseneck came into being after 27 proprietors of land at Field Point parceled their holdings out to tenants. Quote, Horseneck spread all over, he declared, stating Reverend Joel H. Lindsley, one of a long line of ministers of, of the Second Congregational Church, uh, I, I interject that, who preached against the name on November 7, 1866, declared, quote, this part of the town has been slurred with the name of Horseneck, and it has stuck like a burr. <laughs> How about that? I think the petitioners are right in getting rid of the name, Lake Avenue, And where is it? Oh, yes, because that is suggestive of a big city, quote unquote, Judge Hubbard said. Greenwich is rural, and just as soon as they get the name Horseneck, it will spread just as the name Putnam has spread. In support of his contention that that changing names is dangerous, Judge Hubbard declared that the village of Koskab years ago refused to change to the name Bayport, After elements of the village, population appeared in favor of the change. Quote, I heard that they want to change Cognigwag Road to Love Lane. Quote, unquote, the historian continued, appealing to the meeting to vote down this, quote, to vote down this terrible name of Horseneck, quote, unquote. Replying, Mr. Curtis said, quote, We all feel indebted to Mr. Hubbard for his historical lecture, but frankly, between us all, and I'm no chicken myself, the people who live on a road should have the say of what they shall call it. We don't object to the name Horseneck. There is a brook called Brook. I beg of you seriously to let us have our way in this matter, quote-unquote. Quote, what name did it have before it was Lake Avenue? Someone in the rear of the hall asked. Quote, it didn't have any name. Quote, unquote, Judge Hubbard replied. When the water company was established in 1880, they used to speak of it as a public highway. William Rockefeller requested giving it the name of Lake Avenue. Well, there you go. That's really very, very interesting. This is, I have to admit, something that I had never heard of before. So um, sometimes we do like to, uh, to go around town and, and look at the um, uh, street names and um, ask ourselves how they originated. And so now you know how Lake Avenue not only got his name, but kept it. Support is made possible by... An award winner of the Landscape Architecture Foundation, Greenwich-based Peter F. Alexander landscape architect of Site Design Associates, believes that landscape design has the capacity to transform perceptions and ultimately inaugurate a deeper respect for the natural environment. Since 1979, Peter F. Alexander has been tireless in his commitment to excellence in project design, management, implementation, and personal service. Building upon a cornerstone of experience and trust, he believes that each landscaped project Design expands the interpretation of design, craftsmanship, and sustainability. Peter F. Alexander is the founder of the Sound Shore Environmental Information Institute. His notable projects include the Olympics Training Center at Lake Placid, New York, the master plan of the Calf Island Conservancy in Greenwich, Connecticut, numerous residential projects, and much more. Proudly collaborative in his approach, Peter F. Alexander's creations of immersive, experiential landscape spaces, cultivates a sense of community and connections that are second to none. Learn more about Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect, at sitedesignassociates.com. Again, that's sitedesignassociates.com. You can also call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. By all means, when you contact Peter F. Alexander, please be sure to mention that you heard about him through the Greenwich A Town for All Seasons show podcast with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. Thank you. We also welcome Long Island Sound Institute. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. The Institute aims to use modern planning and implementing new technology to conserve Long Island Sound. Looking forward to its stewardship in the area. To learn more about LISI, go on the web to www.li.com. S-I-S-T-U-D-Y dot info or call four seven five eight nine seven five four four four. Again, that's four seven five eight nine seven five four four four. And we are welcoming a new major supporter to the show. The Ambassador Museum United States of America is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual Ambassador Museum based in Greenwich, Connecticut. It seeks to be a tribute to ambassadors, their families, experiences and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. The Ambassador Museum United States of America is looking for records, photographs, and videos of ambassadors and their families or people who have been associated with ambassadors in the past. Monetary donations are also welcome. Funding supports the Virtual Museum, which is receiving support from the University of Denver and the Joseph Korbel School of International Studies. Throughout the town of Greenwich's 20th century history, a number of ambassadors lived here, perhaps the most prominent being Ambassador Joseph Werner Reed. He grew up on historic Denbig Farm off Riversville Road in the backcountry and served as ambassador to Morocco and as chief of protocol of the United States, among other diplomatic assignments. On future shows, we're looking forward to featuring histories of those from Greenwich who served the nation in various ambassadorial roles. You can learn more at amusa.info. Again, that's amusa.info. You can call 203-347-4604. Again, that's 203-347-4604. Or you can write to Post Office Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831 again that post office box 5002 Greenwich Connecticut 06831 <laughs> Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President at Jeffrey Matthews Financial Group, whose financial advisors are knowledgeable in the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. Learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor's Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. That's (laughs) 203-485-7595. Thank you all very much for tuning in to the 5th of November 2021 podcast of the Greenwich of Town for All Seasons show. My name is Jeffrey Mead. I am a direct descendant of the founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, which was founded on July 18th, 1640. What a pleasure it has been to be with you today and to share these wonderful stories about our wonderful town, Greenwich, Connecticut, truly one of America's most exceptional communities. I really am glad that uh, that you were able to, uh, to be with me this week. Um, please feel free to contact me anytime at uh, email. You can do that at Greenwich, a town. For all seasons at gmail.com. Again, that's Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. You can also friend me uh, on uh, Facebook at Jeffrey Bingham Mead. We also have a page or site for um, uh, for the Greenwich a town for all seasons show on Facebook. You can uh, go back and you can listen to these uh, podcasts as many times as you uh, wish by going to Greenwich a town for all seasons dot. Blogspot dot Um, I want to thank my sponsors and supporters, as always. They are the ones that do so much uh, to help make this podcast possible. And I would like to ask all of you, please, if you would... Please consider joining the growing number of of those who are supporting this podcast. Our rates are very reasonable. And boy, look at the content that we can provide. There's nothing been quite like this before um, in the history of Greenwich. This was a radio show uh, before it became um, a podcast. And we're doing great things and there's great things to come. Please be sure to tune in next week. Uh, and, um, and we've got some great stories. Veterans Day is going to come up, so we've got some um, uh, items about that. But really, this has been a great experience. Please go out there and uh, support our historic preservation organizations and join them in the efforts uh, to preserve our magnificent history. Thank you so much for being with us this week. Take good care and see you later. All right, bye-bye now.